On this episode of 1.21 Geekawatts, we talk with the comic book writer Ron Mars about his prolific career writing for DC, Marvel, CrossGen, and more. And Lulu French and Scott Barton return for a roundtable breakdown of Star Wars The Last Jedi. Now, straight from Darth Maul's makeup trailer, he's got the best face painters in the outer rim. This is 1.21 Geekawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Geekawatts, episode number 23 for December 2017. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. It's here! New Star Wars! Episode 8, The Last Jedi, has hit theaters at home and around the world, and it has hit them hard. The movie beat already sky-high projections and brought in $220 million in its first weekend in the U.S. and grossed a total of $450 million worldwide. It's the second highest opening of all time following, you guessed it, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. For the Star Wars faithful, it's been a long two years since The Force and the franchise awakened, and we could get new adventures and answers from Rey, Finn, Poe, Kylo Ren, Luke, Leia, Snoke, etc. Although the fan response seems to be split, would it really be Star Wars if that wasn't the case? The critics almost universally love the film. My household was also in the thumbs-up camp and gathered in front of the microphone to break down our favorite moments and the questions we're looking forward to getting answers to in episode 9. Be warned, this segment is crazy spoilery! If you're planning on watching The Last Jedi and have not yet seen The Last Jedi, skip this segment for now and come back to it after the movie. I will not be the one responsible for telling you that Ray's parents are... Size Noodles and Bib Fortuna! I couldn't help myself! In more ways than one, the Star Wars saga is a multi-generational story that the United States and uh, maybe the world in general is totally in love with. Um, not only is the story itself multi-generational, but the fans are multi-generational as well. And uh, that's exactly who I've got assembled in my living room to talk about it. The many generations of the Barton French family. Let's meet them now! Returning to the show for her latest triumphant return following uh, the Stranger Things discussion that we just had an episode or two ago, Lulu French. Hello. And returning to the show following any number of uh, Marvel Studios movie reviews, Scott Barton. Hello. Hello. All right, so let's get serious. It's been less than 24 hours since we, and uh, if you're listening to this, probably you too, watched Star Wars The Last Jedi. Oh my gosh, you guys, oh my gosh. Here's how we're going to break this down. Uh, since everyone is doing little mini reviews of the four of uh, Last Jedi right now, and why wouldn't they? Um, what we're going to do is I have challenged the fam to each list three Holy Snokes moments. See what I did there? Holy Snokes instead of smoke. I'm sorry. Um, they're looking at me with disdain right now. And also one question that they might have following the end of Last Jedi. A lot of questions asked, some new ones dropped. 
what do they each want to see desperately happen in episode nine? So we're going to uh, go around the circle. No one's going to monopolize, and we'll see if we can steal each other's. We have not discussed what is on each other's list beforehand. All right, Lulu's going first. What was something that blew, number one, blew you away about Last Jedi? My first hashtag holy Snokes moment. <laughs> Thank you. It's going viral in my mind. Um, was the lightsaber fight um, that Kylo Ren and Rey uh, yeah. did together Woo! against the Imperial Guards in Snoke's opera room. Um, I'll credit our friend Alex Brewer for that one, Snoke's <laughs> opera room. Um, because who doesn't love contemporary lightsaber fighting? Right, the first oh, time contemporary we, lightsaber well, yes. fighting. I mean, the first time we saw it was Darth Maul and Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan. Yeah, and we were all like, "Oh, this movie's terrible, but this moment is so awesome." <laughs> I mean, it really was like the best moment in the film because the fighting was so great and the choreography was amazing, and we hadn't seen lightsaber choreography like that in um, any of the OT. Oh, snap. Listen to you. <laughs> this you is know. why I married her. <laughs> I learned all this, people. I've learned it. Um, so um, it was wonderful. And it was so... Oh, that moment when all the lightsabers are activated and they're just... Everybody's striking a pose. Like <laughs> I, A lot of I, voguing in the I, opera room. Inside, I was just like jumping up and down with glee. Like, happen it's gonna be awesome and it was it delivered it was fantastic well and what was doubly cool about that as they took on the praetorian guards that's Whoa. what they're called i don't know i don't know See? is it really another thing to yeah. learn you can there's always something else to learn god help me there's always something more to learn about star wars as my bookshelf will attest i'm sorry family um the coolest thing about that, well, in addition to everything that you just said, is that that was the moment like, oh, my Lord, they're going to be on the same team. We're getting a Star Wars movie where we successfully turned we. I'm going to take credit partially for that. <laughs> that um, that the bad guy came over and like the lead hero, the lead bad guy are oh, fighting yeah, side by true. side. And we've never, eh, we can argue that maybe in the end of Return of the Jedi when Vader turns, but like right. Luke is is fetal on the floor. We at don't that see point. like the dark and the light sides of the four saber fight lightsaber fighting on the same side. No. And especially to see them fighting in tandem, like looking out for each other in a way. That I'm was like thinking back like did we ever see Assange Ventress like side with no. didn't we see that at one We probably point? did. Assage and Obi Wan yeah, fight yeah. together. Maybe. All right, I take it all back. Maybe. But, then it but not in live in action. In Assange's best interest, of course. Yeah. Because yeah. she wanted something. Anyway, we'll have to look that up. Okay, we'll so this is up. only like one out of nine I Holy know. Snokes moments. I know. So we Moving on. Moving. Moving on. Scott Barton gets number two. What is your top Holy Snokes moment? Um, The the kid at the end holding the lights, holding the broom. Sorry. <laughs> it looks like a lightsaber the way that it's lit. I... Was I really liked that shot? And he he wields it like a lightsaber yeah. as he's looking at the stars, somewhat. And like the broom handles in the shape of a lightsaber, like with the curvy end. Yeah, you know? and um, and so why did you like that? What appealed to you about that? Because it was like how it looked like a lightsaber because of the lighting and how he's like looking up at the stars too. Well, and of, course, and of course, it like represents 
geez, I mean, it, it represents next generation, next generation. It represents hope. It represents the audience who were all kids at some point, like playing with broom handles and being Jedi ourselves and like anyone can do this. And there's a shooting star and the spaceship, whatever. <laughs> that was a really, really cool moment. That was a very, very cool moment. Um, okay. I, uh, my first, uh, Holy Snokes is, um, Hey, did we mention spoiler heavy? <laughs> we did in the intro. I said it, I said that it was going to be spoiler heavy. Trust me on this. Okay. Uh, my first one. And I say that because, uh, Luke's death, holy catfish. And I say that because that was probably the first moment mm, that I was actually near tears watching this that's big for you brad because you rarely ever cry i'm a man's man <laughs> a n- man's nerd um uh, a nerd's man a nerd's man <laughs> that's what i which means i am a 11 year old boy that's what we're saying um i think that that got me here's why because when we finally cut back to luke on his uh island getaway and um, he's sitting up on the rock. The whole the jig is up. We realize what had happened the whole time with um, whatever somehow projecting his image to the the battlefields of crate. But he's really been sitting on this rock um, just before he becomes one with the force and fades away. We look out, and he's staring at the binary sunset. Ugh. And they play the binary sunset from John Williams, which is maybe my favorite piece of music in all of. Star Wars, which is nothing but amazing pieces of music. Um, that wrecked me. Uh, and there have been references to uh, correlating light and hope yeah. in the movie. Was yeah. there a refer- reference to the sun at one point when they were talking about hope? The sun. I don't know. Just fire. They just kept like using fire as a metaphor. But I don't remember son. Well, we'll have to look for that in our second viewing. Oh, yay. Oh. That again, that's why I married her. All right, Lulu, <laughs> it's it's back to you. Give us another moment. Okay, so um, this is going to segue perfectly from what you were just talking about because um, Luke's death was very moving for me because, well, Han died at the end of... What? <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> the end of seven. <laughs> and then Luke dies here at the end of eight. But yeah. also, Leia is no longer with us right. as a character anymore uh, because Carrie Fisher is no longer with us. So even though her character did not die in the movie, it felt like her character had died to yeah. me and Luke's character. So then Han was gone. Luke was gone. Leia was gone. I mean, it was it was really hard for me when Han died. <laughs> it feels weird saying that. Okay. I still find her weeping in the corner every once in a while. <laughs> okay, no, it's just a character. It's not real, but come on. <laughs> I'm an ex-gen person, so I've been lived with these characters, you know, since I was five. Um, so that the three main characters were gone um, at the end was very sad for me. I was very weepy during the credits. Yeah. What I'm about, tearing up now. What about C-3PO, Mom? Yeah, well, 
you know those Chewbacca, C three PO, R two D two. They are, they are big characters, but they're also supporting characters. They're How not dare like you the, say that. the big three. You know, I saw a really uh, beautiful story. I thought uh, it was on Hollywood Reporter. I don't remember the author's name, but it looked like she also writes for StarWars.com, who was talking about how um, this was a great movie and a great wrap up in a way for Princess Leia in part because of the suddenness of early on in the movie when Kylo Ren shoots their control vessel and she gets sucked out into space and we as the audience are like, what? She's dead, oh my God, (laughs) what the hell? But sort of the the argument that was made in that article though is how interesting that was because that moment in the movie mirrored what we all felt in real life when Carrie Fisher was at at first, like the the rumors were going around that like, wait, what happened to her? And this is about a year ago as we record this, um, that like she had a massive stroke on an airplane. Like, no, no, that can't, that's not right. It's not over. Star Wars isn't over. Her life is not like that can't be. And, and from the perspective of the movies, we're like, but I've seen scenes with her where she's somewhere else, but princess Leia's dying. What's, what's happening? Um, and then to see her come back then uh, is is soothing at that moment, but is a reminder of just how unfair and sudden it was in real life in, in an interesting way. Um, ooh, we got heavy all of a sudden. That means, Scott, it's up to you to bring us back. Give us another moment. Okay. Um, when the Vice Admiral, what's her name with the Haldo. pink hair? Yeah. With, when Vice Admiral Haldo rammed the main ship into the destroyer and we had those shots of just like it splitting with no noise uh it was so great that's my boy i I love you uh i i will say because especially the next one on my list don't see an explosion like that in the ot (laughs) (laughs) if it's in the ot it has to have like a gigantic uh, ring nuclear ring of emanating from the explosion every time. It'd be a really awesome model, though. You know it would be. It would. Yeah. It yeah, would. Like, that whole time, like, when there was, a, when the noise finally came back, I, like, let out a breath, and I hadn't realized that I had been holding it in that whole time. That's awesome. I What I was going to say, and I'm, I'm going to segue from yours into my next one, just so we don't run 30 minutes on this, which we easily could. That was a really good one. That's a really good one, Scott. That was a really good one. He dabbed. Should we point that out at this point? <laughs> he dabbed to make a point. Yep. Oh, we have a 13-year-old. Um, technically, what was next on my list was cinematography in general. Although, Boring. Scott... Boring. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> Although... <laughs> so, <laughs> film, film critique. <laughs> film critique time. Look, I took I took a lot of film school classes, all right? I really... If you're hearing this, help me. <laughs> Send help. What, when I was writing down cinematography, I was first thinking about that moment, how cool it looked indeed when, when that ship split the giant First Order ship and all the other ones, and it was so quiet, but the lighting like suddenly was being lit by a supernova or something <laughs> nearby because it was this crazy bright light, all black and white on there. Mm-hmm. But so many other moments, the way they used... And they were doing this in the trailers. People were loving it in the trailers, using so much red when they could, whether it was Snoke's opera house um, <laughs> or by the time they get to Crate and and the white 
a sand or the uh, salt on top of the red soil and how effectively they use that all the no, time. I think the red was salt. Oh, was it? No, I thought that the white was because salt is white. Yeah. Well, I think that salt was was red. I think your salt's red. Okay, <laughs> we're going to look this up. <laughs> okay. I think the top layer was like snow or frost or whatever, and then underneath mm. that was salt. Because remember the guy, he tasted it and he said, oh, it's salt. It would make sense if he like, would taste the red because that's yeah. more interesting. That's what he did. He tasted the red. Can I tell you something about that scene, by the way? I don't think it was the guy that did the tasting, but the guy the that guy he told him. I saw you react beside me, so I was like, "Who is this? Ryan Johnson's brother or something? Who is it?" Gareth Edwards, director of Rogue One. Uh, really? Yeah. Yes. If I'm wrong on that, I'm going to get kicked out of nerddom because <laughs> I have not confirmed this online. But just looking at him, like Gareth Edwards. We well, have got a few facts to confirm after this, Brad. We do have a You'll few. You'll have to like when it comes back to your voice after this segment. You're going to clear everything up. Thank you for signing me up for a lot of research <laughs> before this episode goes live. We're back to you, Lulu French. All right. Adam Driver. Holy Snokes, Adam Driver. <laughs> That's hashtag Whoa. Holy Snokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I You're love, a big fan. I am a huge fan. I think he's amazing, and he makes the character of Kylo Ren amazing. He's so damn good. I am just like, I am so 110% there every time he's on screen. I just like, ooh, I'm drinking it all in. I'm, I'm holding my breath. I'm just like very intensely watching him because it is so satisfying to see his performances. And how did you feel in scenes where he had a shirt on? <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad and, you, Brad and you and I did discuss that it was a little... We both felt it was a little gratuitous, the scene yeah, without yeah. the shirt. I did notice that he had been working out. <laughs> and also in that um, stunt video you showed me, yeah. he had some really nice shoulders that I don't remember him having previously. So, but that is, it's really more his acting. Yes, of course. It's his personality yeah. more than. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. To his personality. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I know that I don't I know that uh, Kylo Ren is a polarizing character for a lot of fans. Um and in this household, at least you and I, Lulu, are so on board that I almost do not understand how people would be like, He's too emo, I hate this guy, he's a Vader wannabe. Like you're kidding me if that's if that's where you're stopping with this character and not digging deeper into what he's bringing to the table. Oh, there are so many layers going on. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, Scott Barton, last one. Um, when Kylo killed, when he killed Snoke. Woof. That was harsh. Like the lead up. Everybody knew it was going to happen, but it's a fine art of like leading up to something that everybody knows is going to happen, but you still make it seem so dramatic. I think it's interesting to hear you say that because it was not obvious to me. And I say that really? because, yeah, because Star Wars has always been so, like, as George would say, everything rhymes. I like to make everything rhyme. So, what? Yeah, which is why in Did the... Did he say that? Yeah. He said that about the prequels. Um, meaning, okay, so like if, if in episode four, Obi-Wan, the mentor character, dies. Episode one... Mm -hmm. Qui-Gon, the mentor character, dies. Episode 7, Han Solo, the mentor character, a slightly different version of it, sure. but the mentor character dies. These are also like the um, uh, 
the I'm not getting the word that I want um, legacy characters. You know, they're the ones that cross over from what had happened before. Qui Gon being having a little asterisk next to that. So by that rationale. I think that we probably, maybe not, not Scott at least, would assume that, well, Snoke's going to make her until episode nine, and then in nine he's going to buy it, and that's going to be because Kylo Ren, you know, redeems himself or whatever at the end, because that's how Star Wars movies work. Um, and um, suddenly it happened, smack in the middle of episode eight instead. Like, wait, what? The big bad guy's done? Well, I didn't think that he was going to die in eight, but like if you have Ray and Kylo and Snoke all in one room, then it's gonna happen. I mean, if it doesn't happen in that scene, like that's kind of a major letdown to me. Well, and sure enough, like, it happened. Everybody will think it's gonna happen, but then it doesn't. And the way it happened was pretty cool. How Snoke's was like, I can read your mind and I know what you are thinking, and yeah. so Kylo Ren. Pulled the wool over his eyes and murdered him good without him <laughs> seeing it coming. No, but sure. like with the dialogue, it's like Snoke did know because he was like, and now you eliminate your one true enemy. And it's like he uh, did know what Kylo was thinking, yeah. just not right. He didn't right. know what he was talking about himself. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's almost like since Snoke was being such a jerk to Kylo Ren, I mean, I know that Palpatine did that to Vader a fair amount of the time also, um, but um, it was almost like Kylo Ren was like, I've had enough. You know, That's pretty stupid. If, if, if we're taking, like, if we're going to play the usual game of, like, the Sith Master of, is, knows that eventually he's going to be taken out by his apprentice, and that's just sort of how it goes, a rule of two, blah, blah, blah. But this time that Snoke's like, you're a punk. You don't know nothing. You're no good. Uh, take off that stupid helmet. Oh, yeah. We lost the helmet this movie. Yeah. Helmet no more. Helmet no more. Yeah. My favorite anyway. interactive experience in New York City. <laughs> helmet no more. <laughs> and um, like that whole time before, he had just been like throwing Ray around. And like now they're best buds through Force Links. Well, for a little while at least. All right, I'm moving on to my last Holy Snokes. Uh, and, uh, oh, I have so many more on my list. Holy but um, I'm going to combine everything into this general sense of nostalgia. Tech officially, the next one on my list was going to be music. Um, because we had Luke back. Because <laughs> Don't even. Come on. Don't accuse me of nerding out. Do you understand what this show is? <laughs> Uh, because because since we had Luke, since we had Leia, uh, this was like greatest hits time for John Williams and like every awesome theme from the OT was showing up here as well as his awesome music from Force Awakens and I love that stuff and I will not apologize. Um, and uh, then they told us that Admiral Ackbar died and it happened off screen and um, <sighs> I'm pretty joked up about that just as you were affected by Han's death. Admiral Ackbar meant a lot to me, Lulu. I know, baby. Okay. We we tied an Admiral Ackbar on our tree. He was the star for a few <laughs> he years. Was the star <laughs> he our was Christmas the star. He was the star. Early in our relationship. Oh, and it still survived. I don't believe it. Thank <laughs> thank you, Kenner Toys, for providing our tree topper. All right. So uh, so really quickly, uh, because we're going along, but I know we have questions now. They answered a lot of questions, and I know we each have at least one awesome question that we want to know that has to happen in episode nine. Lulu French, what do you want to know about episode nine? What has to happen? Well, uh, 
you know, coming from my obsession, fondness of Adam Driver and Kylo Ren, right? Um, what? <laughs> well, well reported, yes. <laughs> what is the end of the journey for Kylo Ren? What will it be, right? Is, mm-hmm. is he going to stay with the dark side? Um, is he going to become a hero, die a hero's death? Will he die? It almost mm-hmm. seems inevitable that he must die, mm-hmm. whether he goes over to the good side or if he stays on the bad side. Um, wouldn't it be awesome if he continued living? I know there are so many possibilities, um, some predictable and some not, and I challenge them to uh, give his story arc something that I didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's possible, but I would love to see something that surprises me. Gauntlet is thrown, J.J. Abrams. Gauntlet is thrown. <laughs> He's listening. So, yo, J.J., <laughs> make it happen for me, buddy. Why you ain't call us back no more? <laughs> uh, Scott, what do you need to see in episode nine? Oh, um, I want to see the end of Hux's storyline because I'm very... <laughs> I, I do. I'm very concerned about him, like the way that he... Stop laughing. Are you kidding? After the amount of abuse you people have heaped on me during this segment. Go ahead. Hux. We're very concerned. <laughs> Poor Hux. Poor Donald Gleason. That character is so awesome. <laughs> because he's such a pathetic Nazi, right? <laughs> oh, poor little Nazi boy. <laughs> the saddest Nazi. Me, 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 me. Oh, God, that joke that Poe plays on him in the beginning. Like, I'm holding. I'm still holding. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. Holding for Hux. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> the, the, go ahead. The, he, and, he and Kylo have always been very tense and like, the way that they were arguing at them. At the end of 8, where Kylo, like, threw him into a wall, I'm like, what's going to happen with their relationship? Like, what's going to happen? I feel like... <laughs> don't... Will their friendship maintain? Will they keep being roommates? How is it going to turn out? <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> oh, I understand. I understand. <laughs> like, it seems like Hux's days are numbered now, so... Yeah, Hux, Hux is going to be a goner. Except what if he's not? What if, like, he's the one that survives, like, I'm ready to join the resistance? <laughs> I, oh, God, I, that would never happen. I can't take it anymore. Oh, he's going to have a glorious death that we're all going to celebrate. Or he's going to like get away in an escape pod, and he's going to be like the new Snoke or something like that. Or he's going to star in a Harry Potter spinoff movie <laughs> as the Weasley brother that really did not get a lot of screen time back in the day. Uh, here is the one that I want to see. Oh, my gosh. I have so many. I don't know where. I Not too many. All right. So I'm going to piggyback on your Adam Driver one and say, Kylo Ren, what's going to happen? Knights of Ren. What's up with those dudes? Remember when he casually dropped that he ran away, like he took off from uh, the Jedi, Luke's Jedi Academy or whatever with a few other students? What? Where are those guys at? Well, they're the Knights of Ren, I assume. Maybe. I don't know. The Knights of, of Ren are from what, Brad? They were referenced in the first movie. Um, oh. So, like, in the in Rey's flashback in Force Awakens, mm-hmm. or her Force vision or whatever I should say, mm-hmm. um, 
we saw like that rainy field and uh, Kylo Ren was there and there were like six other dudes or dudettes standing around in the dark in the rain with with lightsabers so like and, like those masks too right yeah in in similar-ish Kylo Ren masks hmm. um now you know that's a force vision so who knows what the heck that's all about maybe they don't exist but in the backstory of like in the press leading up to the first movie when they're like Kylo Ren is a member of the Knights of Ren blah blah blah, blah. like hmm. and they are who dot 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 okay um so uh, I'm I'm gonna float this this uh, just to as a just to blow our minds and make us wonder for two more years. In this movie, uh, they talk about how Ray's uh, they deal with Ray's parentage and the fact that Kylo Ren says, "I know what the deal is," and your parents were no one. You're right. you're not a Skywalker. You're not a Solo. You're nobody. Um, Lulu, you may very well remember, of course, way back when we were about seven years old and Darth Vader dropped I Am Your Father. Mm -hmm. And then we, as a collective nation of excited children, wondered for three years, is he telling the truth? Was that real? I was just worried about Han Solo being frozen in carbonite. (laughs) Like, is he dead? I was just worried about his future son, Kylo Ren. (laughs) (laughs) There were some really sad serious cliffhangers there that we had to wait forever for. Well, I bring that up because my point is, uh, is it possible? I don't really want them to be doing this. I want this to be the answer, what they gave us. Mm-hmm. But what if it's possible that Kylo Ren is 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 messing with her? Well, that's a possibility. And that is what we will leave you on, fair listener. Although I'm sure you're all out there saying like, no, they answered it. Move on, Brad. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, Sometimes. bum. You, you know, face value is what it is. Sometimes it is. I'm pretty sure that Force Ghost Yoda said that in this very movie. <laughs> That's where <laughs> I got that from. <laughs> Except he said it in different word order. All right, everyone. Well, uh, I hope that you enjoyed uh, The Last Jedi. We absolutely did. Um, and um, that you enjoy it for your se- second, third, and fourth viewings. face value. <laughs> <laughs> Comic book writer Ron Mars has touched so many iconic characters in his 25 plus years in comics. Silver Surfer, Green Lantern, Superman, Witchblade, and many, many, many more. Currently, Ron serves as editor-in-chief at Ominous Press and wrote Beasts of the Black Hand, a new graphic novel of espionage, dark magic, and monsters. Ron was kind enough to share some time with me backstage at the 2017 New Jersey Comic Expo. In the world of comic book creation, it's a given that writers and artists will bounce around from publisher to publisher over the course of their career. It's the nature of the business. But writer Ron Mars has not only bounced around, he's left a serious mark at DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, CrossGen, Valiant, and more. And now he's about to start on Beasts of the Black Hand as soon as the Kickstarter finish line is crossed. Uh, Ron, welcome to 1.21 Geekwatts, and happy belated birthday, is that true? Uh, yeah, my birthday was yesterday, oh. so uh, so I, I spent it with Bruce Springsteen. Um, <laughs> I, I paid handsomely for the privilege, but I spent it with Bruce Springsteen. Sure. That's not a bad way to go, not a bad way to celebrate. I actually do want to start with your early days in comics, because assuming the internet isn't lying to me, which of course it never is, uh, you started in the industry with a pretty big splash, pretty much out of the gate uh, in summer 1990. You were writing Silver Surfer, which was in the midst of a pretty successful run for Marvel. What were you doing right before that that Marvel felt comfortable bringing you into the big leagues? What was your 
pre-comics professional life like? Um, I was hanging out with Jim Starlin, so that was you know that was that was the the main factor of of getting the gig. Um, you know, I was a kid. I was like you know twenty three years old or something like that, uh, twenty four years old, <clears throat> and um, you know the only real job I've ever had other than comics was as a journalist. That's what I was doing at the time. Um, so I was uh, I started as a sports reporter and then uh, migrated over to the entertainment desk where I became the entertainment editor. Um, so I had always been a writer. I mean, I'd been working at that job since I was in college. Um, so, um, in a lot of ways, it was kind of the best training ground I could have ever had. And I still use those skills today because, you know, most people have no idea about, you know, punctuation or, you know, proper style. So when, you know, anything that's, anything you write that has, has, you know, some copy to it, somebody has had to go through that thing and, and make sure that it was, you know, make sure that it was proper. And in fact, I, um, for two days this week, I... Uh, I consulted at a video game place because they needed, you know, their, their all their dialogue was written, but they needed somebody to come in and copy edit everything so that it was all in proper style. So, um, you know, th- these are skills that I learned literally 30 years ago, and I'm still drawing on it. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to say if there were writers or artists that influenced you, but I'm guessing that in this case, it may very well be writers, not necessarily from comics, but also writers from, from the journalistic world that, that had just as much of an impact. Um, I think the biggest, you know, the biggest writers that influenced me were writers that I read for pleasure. Um, certainly, uh, certainly Jim Starlin, cause he's the one who showed me how to do this. Um, but you know, Alan Moore, Frank Miller, uh, Stephen King, Charles Dickens, Shakespeare, you know, uh, you, you take bits and pieces from everybody that you read that has an effect on you, um, and hopefully somehow you make it your own. It comes out, uh, you know, you sort of make a stew of it, and then it comes out um, filtered through you. You were a part of the early days of uh, cross-gen comics, writing books like Sojourn and Mystic in the Path. I'm waiting for someone to write the tell-all book about cross-gen. Uh, its time in the sun is fascinating to me since it attracted some serious industry talent and had some really fascinating hierarchical structures like head writer and senior writers um, and attempted the business model of treating the talent as full-time on-site employees with health, health insurance and salaries and whatnot. Were you down in Tampa when you were with CrossGen? Oh, yeah. We uh, moved down to Tampa, um, worked, in, worked in the studio. Um, you know, like at the time, there were these odd rumors of, you know, oh, they all live in a compound and, you know, which just like, like if you go to work at Disney or Sony or Paramount, you go to work in an office. You don't live at the office. Like, I don't, like we never, could never figure out why people sort of made that, that ridiculous leap of, oh, they all, you know, they all have to live together and, you know, like in bunk beds or something. Um, (laughs) All in one long room, wearing robes. Sure. Um, so it was. It was certainly a, a, a new a new way to try to skin this cat. Um, ultimately, not successful because, frankly, it's it's more expensive to have employees. Um, but that was the attraction for a lot of us that went down there. Was is you got treated like an adult. You got treated like um, someone who was responsible to come in, do your work, um, make sure that your books got out on time, um, and you got paid a salary. You got vacation. You got benefits. Um, you got all of the things that 
that most comic book creators as freelancers don't have access to. Um, so in, in that way, it was, it was part of a very noble experiment. Um, financially, it was, not, it was not sound because we spent way too much money uh, compared to getting, ba- getting back too little money. I, I often think that, you know, maybe cross-gen, if we had done that five years later, if, we, if that whole venture had started five years later, by the time Hollywood and the greater entertainment industry had discovered comics, if, if we might still be there and if it, if it would have worked out differently. Um, I don't look back at the, I don't look back at the experience as a bad one. Um, I look back at the ending as a bad one, but um, I certainly learned more about comics and, and putting them together, how to create comics uh, start to finish um, there than I had before or since. Um, we, were, we were our own editors. Each creative team was responsible for their own book. We, we proofed the books. We set the directions for the books. We were very much, um, we very much enjoyed creative ownership of the books. Um, and if, you know, if something was wrong in that book when it came back from press, it was your fault. Because there was, there was nobody else whose responsibility it was. It was, it was you, and the rest of the creative team. And I, I liked that. I, I liked that sensibility, and I liked the fact that most of the guys that you worked with, uh, guys being a, a uh, non-gender related term sure. here, um, were were in the studio with you. You could collaborate in a very real and meaningful sense. Uh, you could sit down with the art team and say, "Hey, what do you, you know? What do you want to draw? What do you not want to draw?" Um, I'm thinking of taking the story in this direction. What do you think? It was, it was, um, it was creatively enjoyable, uh, fi- financially unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, I always found it interesting that there, there was such a strong editorial mandate, and by God, did they want this to be right. I remember reading like editorial pages or something, a full page that would be about. Dear reader, we've been informed by maybe our printer or diamond distribution or something like that 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 there was going to be some hiccup and everything's going to be a week late and we treat these deadlines like, you know, the the gospel and just so you know, here's what's going on when it really just sort of boils down to everything's going to shift a week, which it, it's easy for for me as a fan of course to say, okay, nope, no big deal, but in a situation like CrossGen, especially if it's thinking there's this overhead and oh my god, uh, we're we're losing a week. Well, it was there was very much a promise to the readership that you know we're going to be on time every time, and I think um, I think we did that for two and a half years or something like that. Um, it's a lot easier to control the process when everybody's in house. Like if somebody's if somebody's trailing behind, um, you know, you bring in three inkers to help on, out on pages or a couple of colorists jam on pages to get stuff done. Um, you can you know you can be a little bit more out in front of it, and you know when to raise a red flag and say, uh, we got to, you know, we, we, we have to make a decision here to make sure that this gets out on time. Um, and cr- the creative teams never missed. The creative teams uh, always found a way to get the books done on time. First time we missed a shipping date was because the money was starting to run out and um, the printer's bill hadn't been paid. So the book went off to press and the printer said, yeah, we're not printing this. Um, that's the, the first time a book wasn't in stores because wasn't in stores when we said it was going to be in stores uh, was not because of the creative side of the, the equation it was because of the financial side right it started to fall down 
Uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan as well, and I greatly enjoyed your Star Wars work for Dark Horse, particularly the Darth Maul miniseries that you did with Jan Dersima on art. Big fan of hers. Good stuff. Uh, what was it like to work on Star Wars, and did you find there to be any approvals challenges that were more or less complicated than working on other big properties? Uh, utterly dream come true. Uh, you know, I'm a, <laughs> uh, I, I was 11 years old when Star Wars came out. In 1977, so I was, I was five. The I the, the exact right age, because yep. I, I you know the the old joke is, you know what's the golden age of science fiction? Well, twelve. Uh, you know, <laughs> like the stuff that you discover at that age stays with sure. you the rest of your That's life. That's in your DNA. Yeah. Um, and certainly, Star Wars was that for me. It was a life-changing experience for me to see that film um, when the Star Destroyer you know, flies over your head for what seems like six years at the beginning of the movie, like my life changed. Yeah. Um, so to finally be able to get to play with those toys um, was just astounding to me. Uh, Dark Horse had actually offered me the first Star Wars story that they had done, the first, um, uh, when they took over the license. Uh, the, the initial series they offered to me and I had signed that DC exclusive like the week before and uh, you know just kind of walking around walking around the house walking into walls because you're like oh my god <laughs> like the dream job um, gets put on your plate and you can't take it um, but I was able to um, later on start to dig into some of that stuff and just had such a good time doing it uh, Dark Horse was great to work with um, and the approvals process I found to be no different than than Marvel or DC. Um, you sort of and everybody hears horror stories about um, approvals process for licensed stuff sure. for whatever it is. Um, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, you know, Transformers, whatever, whatever comes from outside of comics and you're doing comics. Um, I find that there are difficulties in that process when the people you're dealing with don't understand comics. Like, when the people you're dealing with don't understand that once the comic is done and drawn, that's not... Like, I've gotten notes from, from licensors on some gigs once in a while, and, and the notes come back and they say, can we reshoot this, this scene? Well, no, actually, we don't reshoot them. <laughs> First of all, we're not they, on film. They, they, have to, they have to be redrawn, but thanks for, thanks for playing our game. Um... With with Lucasfilm, they got it. I mean, they they know how comics work. They they you know there was no there was no steep learning curve for them. They already get it. Well, obviously, you know, Star Wars drew much inspiration from comics, um, and they had been down that road previously. So by the time I started doing Star Wars stuff for Dark Horse, the machine was already in process. And and much like you know much like working with Marvel and DC stuff, you don't you know what your parameters are. You don't decide, hey, you know, uh, Superman, you know, Superman is, uh, is going to be a lady for the next three years. Um, you don't decide to make Darth Vader a lady for the next three years. You know, they're just, like you work within the parameters, you work within the established universe. And, and frankly, I thought the Star Wars stuff was actually a little easier because the continuity made more sense. There was, there was more of a, uh, through line in the continuity that, where you could figure out where to tell your stories. Whereas obviously Marvel and DC are just complete jumbles because 
you know, Reed Richards fought in World War Two, or no, we mean Korea, or no, we mean <laughs> Vietnam, sure. or no, we mean the, you know, the Afghanistan conflict, or no, we mean Iraq. You know, so, so like, where, when, when your universe is, is perpetuated, uh, so that, you know, Batman is always 35, despite the fact that he was introduced in 1939. Like, it can't make sense. And that's fine. You know, that's not a, you know, look, like I said, they're imaginary stories. We're just making stuff up, so don't worry about it. Um, but with Star Wars, it was, you know, there was a lot more of a this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Um, so I found it somewhat easier to navigate, actually. Um, and because of some of the Star Wars stuff, like when I did Star Wars Empire monthly, um, I was very keen to tell stories about Luke and Leia and Han and Chewie and Darth Vader. I, like, I wanted to tell stories about the characters that, that I love and everybody else loves. Those were more difficult because you had to find cracks in the continuity to fit that stuff in. It's a lot easier to tell a story about the third stormtrooper from the left because you're not dealing with his backstory. You know, you're not dealing with anything else that's been established. So that was, like, I made, I made my life more difficult by choosing that path, but I was totally cool with it. Um, and generally they were, generally they were great. Um, and I found that um, once Lucasfilm sort of trusted you, like, they, you know, they, you got the assignment, you turned it in, and, you know, you demonstrated that you had some sense of what you were doing, that it, it got a lot easier to get stuff approved because they kind of trusted you. Um, and certainly that's the way it works everywhere. It's like if, you know, if you're, if you're not, you know, if you're not veering off into left field all the time, they're much less likely to, uh, to look askance at what you're, what you're doing for them. And, um, and again, it was just, uh, it was great. It was, uh, those are some of my favorite assignments ever, um, because I got to scratch that childhood itch. I'm so happy to hear that because uh, I absolutely inhaled that stuff um, going through. If, uh, if, if there's a segment of my collection that's dominated by one franchise, for sure, it's Star Wars for just that reason. And um, over the years, you found yourself getting a lot of attention for, for some uh, specific stories. Green Lanterns shift into a villain, um, uh, unintentionally kicking off the women in refrigerators movement. And even recently, I feel like you've been exchanging some fairly pointed tweets with comic fans who seem resistant to the idea that female-led or minority-led characters in comics can be good and successful, assuming I'm understanding that whole debate correctly. Sure. Are you a lightning rod for controversy, Ron Mars? Um, geez, I hope not. I mean, <laughs> I, actually, that's not even true. I don't, I don't even care if I am or not. Um, <laughs> I, I you, you know, that. I... Look, I, I've... Uh, I will tell you what I think. Sure. Uh, that's... <laughs> that you know good bad or indifferent I will tell you the truth um, with all things uh, and and sometimes that pisses people off sometimes that gets under people's skins um, I don't I don't court controversy um, and certainly there are people that do that want to be you know that, that do want to be a lightning rod because it brings them attention and um, I'm more you know I'm more of the mind that I just want to you know I, I'll be honest with you and tell you what I think, and if you like it, great, and if you don't, okay, sorry. Um, you know, I just, I hate it when people are rude, you know, when people are, are rude, particularly to other creators, uh, and to, um, to creators who are women or minorities who have a much harder road ahead of them anyway, um, I, I'm more likely to get my back up. 
Uh, but just in general, you know, be nice people. Don't be a jerk. Um, but if you are a jerk and somebody gives it back to you in kind, don't be surprised. You thunder. Uh, you, you know, sure. you ask for it. So, I, you know, I don't set out to tell controversial stories in any way, but um, sometimes those are the stories that you end up telling, and, and that's okay. I mean, I think uh, I, I usually go to, to the old sawhorse of, you know, the comic fans who bitch and moan about nothing ever changes, it's always the same, are the ones who bitch the loudest when you change something. Right. Um, and it's and certainly the you know fandom as a whole is not a hive mind. It's not it's not a you know any sort of singular voice. The people who are upset are the ones who are always the loudest and the ones who get the most attention. Um, you know the um, people who complain about diversity in comics and how you know how dare Iron Man be a you know be a black teenager, uh, you know a black teenage girl for God's sakes. Um, you know, or or Thor being a woman for a while, and and uh, you know, I've had people say to me, you know, when 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 someone goes and th- sees a Thor movie and then goes into the store and Thor is a woman, that's a lost reader who's never coming back. Well, first of all, like that doesn't happen. <laughs> like, like we've been making comic book movies long enough that we know that. Yeah, people don't don't stream out it's, of the it's theater. It's the belief that everyone and, wants, which is how can down. I get more of that yeah. four-color awesomeness, right? Um, and, you know, and I point out, yeah, because we, you know, because it's not like we have 50 years of reprinted Thor comics on the shelves, you know, in Barnes & Noble or easily orderable from Amazon that show Thor exactly as the audience expects him. I think all those disappeared when they, when they did, uh, you know, when they put Jane Foster in the Thor role for a year. Um... <laughs> You know, to me, none of that none of that stuff holds water. Um, if you if you don't like a particular comic, maybe don't buy it. Um, there's there's really no simpler answer than that. Um, support the comics that you like, and um, and don't buy the ones that you don't like. There's you know it's you know I think most kindergartners get that. Like you you sure. you, you go to a, you go to a class of small children, <laughs> they would get that. Um, Hey, do you like this thing? No. Well, then, you know, don't do any more of it. Um, so I, I think that because comics is such a is such a close medium in terms of how the, how the fans and the creators and even the publishers interact um, at places like this, um, there's, um, there's a familiarity that I think isn't always healthy. Um, and I, I always tell people, look, you're, you're, the $4 you spend on a comic entitles you to that comic. It does not entitle you to dictate the comic you want. Um, and if, if ultimately sales um, go in the toilet for, for all this stuff, there won't be those comics anymore. Yeah, I that, mean, this that's is how you vote. This right? is this is ultimately a business. Yeah. Um, it is uh, comics are, have always been a shotgun marriage of art and commerce, um, and commerce always wins <laughs> um, because because publishing is a business. If if stuff continues to lose money, you won't see it anymore. If stuff is really successful, you're going to see a lot more of that. So as you said, you know, you vote with your dollar, and that's the that's the most logical way to. To bring about change, I don't, you know, I don't know that pissing and moaning on YouTube is is really the agent of social change that some of these guys think it is. Um, mostly, I think, you know, there's just some 
mostly I think there's an attraction to, you know, uh, I, I bitched about a comic or tore it up or, or set it on fire and I got some attention for it. You know, I guess if that's what floats your boat, uh, okay, fine. Um, but, but ultimately, um, publishers, you know, publishers do less of what doesn't sell and they do more of what does sell. So that's, that's, that's how, um, that's how publishing plans are made. Uh, nobody, you know, nobody sits down in a boardroom and says, Hey, uh, you know what we need is a bunch more of these comics that don't sell. Um, it's, it's simply not the reality of, of how this business works. It, it does seem, just to, the uh, last bit on, on this subject, it does seem particularly disheartening when uh, often uh, comics that are, that have more female characters or, or minority characters that no one is necessarily trying to make a statement with, with these directions or characters. They just want to write and draw. They want to create something that, that feels right to them. Um, and maybe they see a hole in the market or whatever the case might be. But then just because it is what it is, that's then it comes under fire, a la your example of Riri Williams in, in Iron Man. Um, like, we're just trying to create a character, and again, back to the, the impermanence of everything, Tony's coming back at some point. There's no real danger, so why don't you ride out <laughs> this new flavor uh, of comic for a little while and see where it goes? It, it seems baffling to me that there are adults who look at this situation, understand that there are two hugely budgeted Avengers movies coming yes, out yes. with Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth in those roles and think Tony Stark's gone forever. We're never going to see him again. Like, ha- have, you, have you never read a comic before? Um, so, sure. Um, it's, it's easy to kind of, you know, roll your eyes at that stuff but uh, and just figure, well, haven't you been paying attention? But it's... Um, uh, I think the the torrent of uh, maybe not abuse abuse is the right word sometimes, but just unpleasantness sure. that rolls down um, is uh, is counterproductive for everybody. Um, and I look, I I came from a journalism background where where every day somebody bitched at you for what was in the newspaper because it wasn't exactly what they wanted. It wasn't their worldview. It wasn't. Yeah, it yeah. was. Um, you know, my son's name didn't get into the football story, the high school football story this week. Well, you know, he didn't do anything. Uh, you know, he, he had one tackle. We don't normally, but but people are people are generally interested in what serves their own causes. I learned that as a twenty year old working at a newspaper. So by the time I got into comics, I was just like, all right, well, thanks for your opinion, and and I was perfectly capable of of just moving on and not paying a whole lot of attention I understand that a lot of other creators have not had that experience um, and so don't have that don't have that armor built up um, and and you know take that sort of criticism to heart and take bad reviews to heart um, and I you know it's not it's not appropriate for me to say oh just just ignore it um, that's my answer and it's worked for me for a long time but I know that not everybody is 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 built that way um, so uh, you know I've always approached it like look you, you know you you ignore the good reviews and you ignore the bad ones you, you ignore the you know you ignore the slings and arrows that you get and you if you're good but if you're gonna do that you have to ignore the praise too um, because 
it's all just one person's opinion. Um, you, you do the best you can. You try to treat everybody uh, with respect. But ultimately, you create what you create for yourself. And if you're satisfied with it, that's what matters first and foremost. Speaking of voting with your wallet, I want to make sure that we talk about the Kickstarter campaign. You're in the home stretch as of this recording for Beasts of the Black Hand, a project with Matthew Dow Smith and Paul Harding, who describes the project as a diesel punk horror adventure. I love that combination of words. Uh, what else can you tell us about the project? Um, it's a good combination of words because I wrote them. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, one of the cool things in comics is that you can um, you can work with your friends. Comics is a relatively small business, and it's a relatively social business. Um, so, um, you know, Paul Harding lives a half hour from me. Uh, he's been a sculptor for DC and Sideshow and Gentle Giant and a bunch of other places. Um, we've been friends for a number of years. Uh, Matthew Dow Smith I've been friends with for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Um, he was actually at CrossGen with us. Uh, I was the guy who said... We should hire Matt Smith. Let's get him down here. So Beast of the Black Hand came from from Paul having an idea of, I want to sculpt some monsters. <laughs> you know, in, in the same way that, you know, that Hellboy sprang from Mike Mignola wanting to draw monsters uh, and then building something around it so that he could draw monsters. It's kind of the same thing here in that Paul wanted to sculpt some monsters and he generally has been doing a bunch of superhero stuff, uh, you know, sculpturally. And so you always want to, you know, you always want to do the thing that you don't have. So Paul wanted to sculpt some monsters and then started to come up with the architecture of the story that would allow him to do some monsters. So he, he kind of uh, paced out this, this concept, characters and, the, and the, the general framework of the story and came to me and said, Is, you know, can we do this? Would you be interested in writing this? And, you know, the story was up my alley, but more than anything, I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to work with my buddy. Sure. Um, and um, and then I said, sure, I'm in. Let's let's figure this out. Um, Matt Smith uh, was in Seattle with me uh, for the Emerald City Con earlier this year. I knew he was coming off of his X Files assignment, and I said, hey, do you have time to maybe work this in? And he said, sure, that sounds great. You know, so I mean, literally, that's how that's how the whole thing worked out. Um, and now. Um, Matt's, I don't know, eight pages from the end or something like that. We're, we're basically almost done with it. Um, and it's it's been a ball. It's been, you know, just making stuff up and, you know, nobody nobody looking over our shoulder to tell us what to do or what not to do or to give us permission. We're just, uh, we're just making the thing up. Uh, my friends at Ominous Press, where I'm the editor-in-chief, so I, there was, you know, I, I, I'm wearing two hats you for this You know a thing. guy. Yeah, I know a guy. <laughs> So, um, so, and Paul had already met, um, through me, had already met uh, Sean Husfar, who was the publisher at Ominous Press, uh, and Ominous was starting to look at doing some different projects beyond just the little Ominous Universe stuff that we're doing currently at IDW. Um, so this is the first one that is, is just its own thing. So we're doing it in um, basically French album format, which is an oversized hardcover album um 64 pages uh, 48 pages of story plus sketchbook and concept art and all that kind of stuff um and the natural the natural venue seemed to be kickstarter um so uh the book uh 
at, at this point, I guess, as we record this today, we're at, you know, 21,000 of our 24,000 goal, and we still got almost two weeks left, so it right. looks pretty good for us <laughs> to make it. Um, and if this one is successful, we do another one, and, and we just... The, each each graphic novel that we do with this will have a sense of conclusion by the end of it, but also leave us room to tell another story. Uh, if other folks want to follow you online, what's the best place to do that? Twitter, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah, Twitter is just at Ron Mars. Um, my long overdue-to-be-updated website is uh, ronmars.com. And, uh, and Sean Husbrider actually keeps threatening to, to make a Facebook account for me. Uh, so... That might happen at some point if you can twist my arm. But for in general, just follow me on Twitter. You'll find out what's going on. Very good. Well, I want to release you back to the con. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for the generosity of your time, and good luck with everything. That's a lot on your plate, and I can't wait to read it. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm happy to let you all know that the Kickstarter campaign was successfully funded by, no joke, 666 backers exactly. And Beasts of the Black Hand is now available for pre-order to ship in February 2018. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Thanks to my guest Ron Mars and Lulu French and Scott Barton for talking Star Wars with me, as if they had a choice. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out. It means so much more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? What should be forced to polish the Silver Surfer surfboard every 10 million miles? Alex Brewer of Snoke's Opera House joke fame wrote to let me know that he and his wife, Courtney Dickerson, listened to episode 22 and, quote, loved Lulu on the Stranger Things segment, saying that she was so natural. You hear that, Lulu? He also called her a cuss monster. Also true. It's true, Alex. She was filthy during that segment. Hope you enjoyed the slightly cleaner appearance from Lulu in this episode. You, too, can give feedback and be part of the conversation at one of the show's many social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121gigawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section at the iTunes Store. It is so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. You know what I'd really appreciate? Whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review, hopefully a good one, on iTunes, which will help more people find the show, which would make me a happy, happy man. It will take 30 seconds and could make such a difference to the team behind this podcast. Consider it a holiday gift, would you? And if you're not an iTunes user, you can also find us by searching for 1.21 gigawatts at soundcloud.com or on Player FM. Huge gratitude to the jovial joiner of the Jacks, composer and my co-producer, David Sisko. Here, Chewy. I think we better replace the negative power coupling. You are and remain the best, Sisko. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. 
you can follow, like, etc. all those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome with our radtastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. What every geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad You might meet Luke and Leia's dad Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad It'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks 1.21 freaking gigawatts At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi at last we will have revenge. You have been well trained, my young apprentice. They will be no match for you. Mm.